For December 17th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 546, Eating My Old Man Kit Kat. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. Uh, But, you know, we're all the same and yet different, right? Like, it's like we all subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve, but we do it in different, we do it in different ways in different places. You could call it a, uh, overthinkiverse. If you wanted, or uh, an 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 oververse, or an underverse, or a, a verse verse multiverse. Um, I'm Matt Rather. I am here with uh, with uh, uh, other other. Well, no, I'm I'm also Peter Fenzel, and I'm also Mark Lee, right? <laughs> and and here's my friend Peter Fenzel, who's also Matt Rather and also Mark Lee. And also voiced by Nicolas Cage. How are you doing? <laughs> we should we should do we should do an overthinking it podcast as us, right? As our overthinking it podcast personas. Wouldn't that you know? Wouldn't that be funny? Uh, yeah, I wonder if we could find the same occasion for it that Sony found for this movie, which was rather textured and complex when you get right down to it. <laughs> and uh, also here, uh, zapping in from an alternate dimension, is my friend Mark Lee, who's also Peter Fenzel, who is also Matt Rather. And I'm voiced by John Mulaney. <laughs> does that sound anything like John Mulaney? I think it kind of does, right? He's great. I love John Mulaney. <laughs> I uh, uh, I was texting with our, our friend and sometime overthinker, Josh McNeil, about going to see this movie. And uh, he was like, I have a kid, so I can't uh, just go this weekend. But I really will make an excuse to see anything John Mulaney does. Now, I was not a huge Office fan. I mean, I, like, I just didn't watch it. I'm not, not a fan. Man, I, I, you know, please don't, don't, uh, don't at me. But the uh, that show just did not kind of hit at the right time for me when I had an office shaped hole in my life. So I, uh, I missed it and missed all the good stuff. I feel like a lot of people who really like John Mulaney know him as what he was, Jim, right? Uh, know him as Jim from The Office. I don't know. Is there is there another like big? Wait, Mulaney what? Actor? What are you even talking Ooh, about, huh? Matt? John Mulaney, you're thinking about John Krasinski. Oh, John, John Krasinski. John Mulaney was not on The Office. <laughs> oh. Oh, wait. So, wait. He didn't start. That's in, an, uh, the, in another universe, John wait, Mulaney started The Office. He, yes. didn't, he didn't star uh, in a Jack Ryan TV series from Amazon very recently? <laughs> no, no, he did not. No, and he would say it like that. Wait, he didn't, yeah. he didn't make a movie called uh, A Quiet Place with Emily, uh, what's her name? With Mary Poppins? I mean, he did, but he didn't release it to the public. <laughs> no. Oh, he no. was an SNL writer. Oh, uh, okay. Different. Stand-up comedian, had yeah. his own sitcom very briefly, which is not very good. Um, but it, Oh, and also on Broadway. Yeah, with on Nick Broadway. And, and Oh, Hello, which yes. is fantastic. Also on uh, Netflix. Probably the best awards show hosts currently working, Nick Kroll and uh, John Mulaney, when they host the... Film Independent Spirit Awards. It's just a delight. Definitely. Well, I hear the Oscars needs hosts, so <laughs> you know, as, as long as they don't have never said anything problematic. 
They're too smart. I, yeah. I'm so people. embarrassed. I've actually had those two people confused for so long and a little, no, like I'm not even joking. I had this weird cognitive dissonance where I was like, the guy on the Netflix poster for Kid Gorgeous doesn't really look like the guy on the Amazon poster for this Jack Ryan show. <laughs> no, I, I'm not joking. I'm, you know, no, yeah. anyway, so, so there, there you go. Gosh, well, I everybody learned something on the overthinking it podcast and you learned something today. It's your special day. <laughs> boy, did I, boy, did I ever. So, uh, I don't know, uh, Sp- Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse spoiler alert. And I guess it, it sort of matters for this one. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty fun, right? Like, uh, and the, the twists and turns are part of the story though. I suppose if you read the comics, which I, uh, if you read the, the comic books or are familiar with the various spider continuities, um, a lot of this stuff is is old hat to you. When I did Wikipedia research, it explained to me the origins of the a lot of the the stories about Miles Morales's family members and things like things like that, and the the various alternate uh, alternate Earth Spider Men uh, or people Spider uh, not even people Spider beings because robots are included in this uh, in this assemblage and, and pigs. And pigs, yes, but spider beings. Um, so, uh, yeah, is it? Uh, I don't know. What? What? Pete, say a little more about the the multi level textured uh, Spider Man IP situation in which we find ourselves that leads <laughs> to to this film being made. Sure. So, I guess there's two through lines, right? There's the idea that in the cinematic world. We have Sony that has still certain license to make Spider-Man films, but just not the specific sort of Spider-Man films that they are now distributing that Marvel is making, which opens up their uh, option to use other Spider-Man characters, such as Venom, such as the upcoming Jared Leto vehicle, Moribus the Living Vampire. I believe there will at some point be a Kraven the Hunter movie. They're really digging, folks. They're really digging. But this movie is exploring all of the, not all of, but some sampling of the alternative universe representations of spider-man that uh it's it's funny because it's not unique to spider-man it's really a tradition in superheroes that goes way 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 back even well before the existence of marvel comics this idea that when you create a superhero you're creating this kind of iconic character that is has a characteristic that defines them and the character will have other characteristics so for example you know what are the people will often argue what are the characteristics that define what batman is and a lot of comics that are like this will interrogate this question does batman have to be rich could batman do a story where batman is poor right does batman have to have gadgets could batman do a story where he just uses his leotard and his punching and kicking skills does batman have to be smart could you do an episode uh, an issue where batman is stupid uh you probably that's probably the toughest of the three that i can think of in terms of Batman characteristics, but this movie is playing with that. It sort of sets up the characteristics that represent what Spider-Man is. And then in this tradition going back, you kind of take those characteristics and you look at your audience for your comic book and you try to see if you can take this character to new audiences by putting a different person translating those characteristics into a different character that might appeal to some part of your audience that's historically underrepresented and might, well, even historically, because some cases we're talking about matters of individual numbers of years, right? Like, uh, well, we wrote a comic book and it's selling really well with boys of this age. We wanted to sell with boys that are younger. Let's make an alternate version of the superhero who's younger. We wanted to sell it to girls. Let's make an alternate version of the superhero that is a girl. Uh, let's, let's, we want it. And then this is expanded in the more modern era, 
to countries, ethnicities, various sorts of identity politic, various sorts of artistic styles, all sorts of different morphings and uh, re-understandings of superheroes. I mean, I, I, I would I would trace it back to the early 40s and the Marvel family, which was really the, we're talking about Shazam Marvel, not <laughs> uh, Captain Marvel Marvel. Right. Um the idea being that the the superhero who is currently called Captain Marvel is only called as such because the Marvel Comics Company is attempting to assert a trademark and and copyright sort of uh, domain over its own name. Uh, the actual character of Captain Marvel is from a company called Fawcett Comics. It goes back to the 40s. That character is also called Shazam. That character also has a movie coming out next year. Okay, Shazam is sort of like Superman. He's a little boy that turns into Superman. The first character, I the earliest character I can think of and in, in my research that creates this sort of situation that we're dealing with in the um, in the in the Spider-Verse movie is in 1942 when they rolled out the, the young Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel, which was uh, Captain Marvel's twin sister who also got superpowers. I don't know if they were twins. I think they were sis- their brother and sister, but she also got superpowers. And then the bunch of them had a family with each other and they had a dog. Right. Um, and they had stuff like later on Crypto, the Wonder Dog, right, the super dog that Superman had and Bizarro Superman. And there's this whole tradition of like just like the superhero that, you know, but slightly different to appeal to different people. And uh, this has taken on a kind of a new weight in the modern era as comic books has been seen as more of an opportunity to kind of make political headwinds or to fight to fight political headwinds, right, to make political tailwinds. Uh, as in, in the 40s, people didn't really see comic books as a major vehicle for pretty much anything other than the entertainment of children. Uh, but yeah, but uh, shout out, shout out, of course, to uh, Otto Binder, who created many of the characters I'm just talking about. Um, and before I kind of ta- hand it back to you guys, I will say that the weirdness in Spider-Man Enter the, the Spider-Verse with all the Spider-Man from alternate dimensions, you know, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man Noir, all this stuff that's sort of strange, the surrealistic style of the art and this sort of distorted and hyper deformed style of the character design, the weird style of the animation. I think you could trace this all back through this tradition of like weird alternate universe superheroes, where if you go into the micro history of it, actually, interestingly enough, traces back through comic book writers who are also writers for the magazine Weird Tales, and thus, as such, were co-workers with H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard of Conan the Barbarian, right? So it's like that we the really weird, dark, scary, creepy, strange pulp fiction of the 30s, it, it employs people. And those people in the 40s, <laughs> exactly, those people in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, those people, a lot of them move into superhero comics. It was and like, a, it was a, like a, a macabre New Deal. You know? Exactly, exactly. And so, like, people like, you know, Otto Binder, Edmund Hamilton, who wrote the uh, alternate universe story where Lois Lane, where Earth blows up, Lois Lane becomes super, super, uh, super made and goes to Krypton and saves it, right? And which is sort of a. 1963, you know, like so many freaking years ago. And this is still something people have an issue with today. It's so it's so mind blowing. But these are all people who have this pedigree of this really weird, speculative horror sci fi uh, literary uh, tradition that they've then brought into comic books. And it's interesting to see that tradition kind of intersect with kind of identity political tradition. Uh, Even in this case, you know, like the traditions of hip hop with regards to kind of art style and, uh, as as an you know graffiti and such and other sorts of modern art styles, it's just um, I, I guess I would say is that Enter the Spider Verse is both 
a synthesis of the commercial state of comic books and comic book movies, more importantly than comic books themselves. It, it is a synthesis of commercial comic book dynamics and a synthesis of historical comic book dynamics going back like 70 years. So like this is a this is a as a movie that is very hooked into comic book history and the kind of current state of things uh, and and relies on it for a lot of its stylistic choices, which it then goes on to utilize for other means. It's not here to tell you about the history of alternative universe superheroes. It then uses that to do other sorts of things. But I just thought that was really compelling. And, and I really liked it about this movie, like the 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 whole even just the way that the, the sort of kingpin is this sort of light in darkness and doesn't move like a human. And and it sort of relates through this sort of distant echo to this sort of Lovecraftian horror that's below Brooklyn that might rise up and kind of glitch the whole world. Uh, it, it just it's it's really cool the different ways that these all these things all connect with each other. I mean, Brooklyn is gentrified a lot since Lovecraft wrote. So, you know. <laughs> Lovecraft did not like New York City. Lovecraft also did not like black people. So Lovecraft would not have approved of this movie. Which, uh, by the way, the gentr- a very nice guy. But the gentrification is name checked in this movie. Uh, yeah. It is it is it is pointed out. It just it it's a small thing that adds to the enjoyment of it. Like it's just it feels authentically New York. Um, in, in, in a, like, and yet you know everything is like so fantastic around it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. There, there was. It's. It, let's not go into it too deep now. But like the Sam Raimi Spider Man and the kind of like the body horror aspects of of that, and like the kind of the. I remember like a sort of focus on the alterations in his body by the genetically modified spider um, that that uh, bit him. Like that that seems to also partake in that root, and like the the idea. There is something there is something in the DNA, right? Like in the in the kind of the monstrous biform DNA of Spider-Man that is like part human, part animal, right? And the fact that, that the alter the alter ego, the like the public face, Peter Parker, or the most popular public face, Peter Parker Parker is so kind of relatable, you know, in in can, canon Spider-Man and the most mainstream canonical Spider-Man, like the Spider-Man that was in the newspaper, daily newspaper comic strips type of uh, Spider-Man, um, that that he's so relatable is a weird sort of face to put on this this darkness, right? Because like I don't know, Venom kind of belongs to the Venom belongs to the the. The, the horror kind of monstrous by by form uh person the idea that you can be not not kind of integrated and transformed but kind of two things at once you know to a human sort of taken over by an animal or in the case of of peter porker uh an animal taken over by an animal (laughs) but just at the risk of stating the obvious we're talking about the core appeal of spider-man uh to an adolescent audience that is um by and large trying to create identity and tries on different identities puts on a mask if you will right that's that's like a lot of not just spider-man but a lot of other superhero movies and why they're so appealing in particular spider-man because it's set in a high school and and you know and then the the body horror connects to puberty and all that kind of stuff is that basically right yeah and i mean like that it was really in the toby Maguire one where he you know his teenage bedroom is just cut a washed in a wash and white <laughs> sticky stuff you know right like that that does sort of underscore the relation to uh to puberty 
in like in no uncertain terms um this like the it's idea also like lampshaded or like you know briefly acknowledged the puberty thing and then moved on in this movie i am i mean i really am curious there's a lot in kind of pete's pete's opening statement that that uh you know is a lot more the the history than i than i knew so i'm grateful for that but i'm interested in this idea of like there are certain dials you can turn on on the character to make another character, right? And then there there are certain dials you can't turn, um, and that's like a it's a it's a cool idea. And I guess that that's like arguing over the dials that you're allowed to turn and the dials that you're not allowed to turn explains a lot of and like the the kind of the political dimension of that right like you you can't turn the dials that make these characters like me right you can't turn the dial that makes this character uh what uh concerned with the same things that i'm concerned with right and then and that's that's uh you know the last five years of star wars criticism right there in a nutshell isn't a it a golden age as it were <laughs> more of a golden shower than a golden age <laughs> <laughs> inappropriate sorry too soon <laughs> <It's that. laughs> uh the uh so, yeah anyway yeah and so to be clear like Sony runs into this problem of turning the dials when they're making mainstream live action Spider-Man movies, right? Tobey Maguire, white man, uh, Jason, uh, Andrew Garfield, white man, Jason Alexander as Spider-Man. White, right. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> um, the, 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 the most recent. Oh God, at least I'm not the, at least I'm not the, the only one. Mark didn't know the difference between Jason Alexander and Andrew Garfield. <laughs> What? Well, never, they're not the same person. I'm never gonna okay. live. I'm never Tom, gonna live this time. Tom, Tom, <laughs> Tom Holland, don't, who don't is the MCU me. iteration of, of Spider-Man in the in the movies. Also, white man. Um, there, every sort of you know opportunity to reboot Spider-Man comes along. Uh, a, a portion of the fan base agitates for a Miles Morales. Uh, they don't make that happen, and so Sony finds a safe space to do it in this animated one, while also you know at, at the same time throwing in you know all this multi multiverse dimension. Uh, almost in a sort of way of like having his cake and eating it too. It's like, oh, we got white spider Spider Man over yeah. here as well. Yeah, sort of. I would refer to that as an elegant solution to their problem, right? Because this right. movie's great. Yeah. This is a great movie. It would yeah. be worse. It yeah, would be exactly. worse off if this movie were either a not good or b not promoted. Uh, but I feel like commercially, it seems to be pretty successful, and people seem to know that it exists. I suppose. Although I guess I haven't seen a ton of advertisements for it, but. You know, uh, then again, I'm not watching a ton of television. So, I, I, uh, so let's talk about that. Like, I went to this movie in a party that included a three year old and a five year old boy. Um, and there were other children of maybe not, maybe the three year old was a little extreme. He was, he was probably the outlier, but like other children of that, you know, kind of age range in the theater. And as, as I was watching it, like this was, it was not a successful selection of movie for a a three-year-old and a five-year-old. The five-year-old like responded to some of the excitement and some of the, like the motion and the fighting and stuff like that. But like was completely, completely out to sea with the plot. And like, I, I thought I had thought just kind of because of the positioning or at least the positioning that I was aware of that it was like a kid's movie. Now, maybe that means like 11, 12, 13 and not five. But uh, I don't know. It was it was um, 
it was that that strange uh, hybrid animated film that is both uh, a, a children's film and an, and an adult film. I mean, do you feel like yeah. do you feel like um, there is an intended audience for the movie? I mean, it's or is it just really a four quadrant movie and and uh, it's it's for everybody? I mean, my crowd when I saw it was all actual teenagers which was wild. It has been a long time since I have sat in a movie with a crowd of all actual teenagers. Pete, you, you, and, walked, yeah. you walked among them? I mean, I sat like a skulking weirdo in the back. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I basically, I went at like 10 o'clock nipping, on Saturday nipping, night. Nipping from the flask that you keep hidden in the pocket of your trench coat. <laughs> like, like we, yeah, that's sort of what it, like, like eating my old man Kit Kat, right? Just being like, I'm going to eat a Kit Kat because I'm an old man with, a, with an unkempt beard. Uh, and I'm going to try not to interact with any of these people. Uh, but, um, but it just, it reminded me of... Seeing movies like this back in the 90s where, you know, the X-Men machine or the Simpsons machine was right outside the the movie doors and you would see something like this and then come out and like play the, see if you could play the game for long enough before sneaking into another movie. Like it sort of had that kind of vibe to it. And so many of these youthfully oriented action movies now and adventure movies are so broadened in their quadrants that I just don't feel like I'm among those people anymore. And that might be a product of where I see the movies. Probably not, because I see them in a lot of different places. But this seemed to be a movie that actual teenagers were interested in, which, uh, you know, more power to Sony for figuring that out, because I hear that's not easy to sort. Um, but I, it, I did I did feel like there were certain Shrekky aspects to it. Uh, like for like uh, in, in when I say a Shrekky aspect, I mean, that there were jokes and moments in the movie that were planted so that older people could feel like they were in on a joke that the younger people watching the movie wouldn't necessarily get. Uh, and um, one of them was when uh, they broke into the lab to steal the software to make the new uh, dongle, to make the new whatever they were calling the MacGuffin, which was the lovely. Goober. The goober. To make the new goober, they bust through a vent that has a sort of sh- geometric shape on it, very similar to the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie in that famous scene where Tom Cruise comes down on the wireframe. And uh, mo- I don't think anybody else in the audience that I was watching this movie with were alive when that movie came out, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a staggering feeling, right? When when Tom Cruise, uh, you know, and Leon the professional. God, that's a that's <laughs> a macabre new deal. My own, mor- <laughs> my own mortality. <laughs> It just felt like that from time to time, the movie had moments like this where they were referencing either referencing something specific that only older people would get or making some sort of joke that was only supposed to be funny for older people because it wasn't like the whole movie stopped for everybody to laugh. There was like a little joke, but the movie just sort of kept going. And so I felt like it was trying to be both a movie that adults would see with their kids and a movie that teenagers would see, but it was too honest and too much heart to really be for everybody. Uh, It felt like it was for teenagers because, and I'll tell you why is because the problems that the adults had with regards to the teenagers ended up being pretty reductive and the teenagers problems ended up being pretty well fleshed out. Right. So like, uh, like Peter B Parker's issues vis-a-vis, uh, Miles Morales needed to take a backseat to Miles Morales's problems. Mm. We'll contrast that to because Miles Morales's problems were more fully realized, and Peter B. Parker is a caricature, and he's not a caricature out of disrespect. He's a caricature because, like, from the perspective of Miles Morales, the lead of the movie, you know, this is what that whole thing represents. And I would even venture to say, uh, 
that that archetype of Spider-Man it does exist in the comics, right? It is these are characters that exist in the comics and is being brought in to serve a very specific narrow sort of role and not be a different lead. This is not a lead character. This is a side character. And so his, his struggle is like less fleshed out. And as such, uh, you know, that's telling you where the center of gravity of the story is. Like the idea that he can just go with a with a bouquet of flowers to the doorstep of Mary Jane in the sort of uh, denouement of the movie with the expectation that, oh, he figured it out. It's going to be great. Uh, whereas Miles Morales has to, like, much more seriously consider his relationship with his roommate and his girlfriend or not his girlfriend, his female friend from another dimension. Uh, <laughs> that's like, yeah, the kids, the, the, kids where the, yeah. The, the kids today are not into labels. I, that's true. They're they're really just friends. Uh, you know, they'll maybe uh, web up from time to time. <laughs> but uh, but no, that, I don't mean this as an insult at all. I'm just saying that, like, look where the movie spends the most time and energy. Uh, and if it seems to be disorganized or if it seems to be un- off center, that might tell you who it thinks its most important audience is. Like if you compare it to Iron Man and Spider-Man at the end of Infinity War. The moment is a paternalistic, a pater- not a paternalistic, but a paternal moment mm. where it's like Iron Man is being paternal to Spider-Man. Spider-Man has problems. Iron Man has problems. But Iron Man's problems in that moment are more complex and textured than Spider-Man's problems are, which leads you to think that Iron Man is really the focus of that moment. Whereas in this movie, Miles Morales is the focus of most of the moments because he's the center of the movie. And then he's who it's for. Uh, which is great and cool and something that we don't get enough of. And it's and thankfully now we're not in a situation where we only get one superhero movie every like year and a half that's any good or none in several years that are any good. There are lots of superhero movies. And so there's enough room that everybody should be able to enjoy these things without complaining about it. In fact, yeah. they're, they're all superhero movies now, really. I mean, look, it's evolution, man. You know, natural selection. It's, it's a cruel mistress. It's you know, not, it, uh, it's not Pete. It's a radioactive spider that's bitten the movie <laughs> industry. And now it's this weird biform monstrous thing. Hey, OK, so we, we started to talk about Miles Morales as the character. So let's just keep uh, tugging on that thread or that um, that uh, spider spider web strand there. Um, uh, OK, so Ew. I feel like a big part of this is uh, I'm sorry to gross you out, Matt. The body horror, it's everywhere. Um, a, a big sort of like you know, message message in this movie is when the gra- he's doing the graffiti and it says like no expectations. Which yeah. was morphed from great expectations to no expectations, which is intermingled in with the whole classic Spider-Man great power comes great responsibility thing. And it comes out at the end back to great expectations. Um, is, it, is it enough to say that he is just kind of like working out his own sense of responsibility, obligation to his family, to himself and to his city? Um, or is there something else going on there? I mean, it's totally something else going on here. So tell me what it is, Pete. Well, so there's an empty, empty figure in the middle of the no expectations that's blacked out. And mm-hmm. then in the shot, when they move away from it, they put Miles Morales's figure into the empty figure. I feel like and this goes back to something that I hope we go into more detail on, which is the artistic style of the movie and what the yeah. movie is doing, like visually. And I think you're setting this up a little bit. Uh, it's making the point that there aren't superheroes who look like Miles Morales. There are not you know, young black men who get to be superheroes. And as such, there's the idea that being drawn as a superhero creates an expectation that you could be capable of doing great things. That if you see that mirrored back to you, you can then think, oh, wow, like I could be destined for greater things than than what I think I, I could do. Uh, and and that's the benefit of having somebody like Miles Morales in the world. If you think of sort of superheroes as having any sort of moral mission to encourage children, uh, it, which is, I think, 
you know, like if if they've had any moral mission over the course of the entire scope of the 70 or 80 years that they've been around, depending on how you define it, it's to provide moral lessons to children and moral lessons that are encouragement, moral lessons that give them a sense not just of belonging, but of participating. And uh, through the participant, the participation takes the form of action. So, for example, take Superman. Superman is a Jewish allegory. He is a refugee. He has special talents because he's very skilled, uh, but they aren't necessarily appreciated because he's not from around here. He gets to move to America. He gets welcomed into America, and he has this secret past that he has to hide from everybody while he goes to work. And uh, but he has this sort of heart in and of himself that that's rooted in this sort of ancient, distant place from which he draws this like tremendous amount of strength. And the idea, you know, is that like if you feel like you don't belong, or if you feel like an outsider or something like that, you also might have some sort of secret story strength to draw from and also superman is able to lives off principle and uh and he does things that are right and good right is is and whatever whatever superman happens to be written about at any given time is in some way related to what the writer thinks is good or right or what the writer thinks of what is good or what is right you know is are these problematic concepts are they not problematic concepts and so when we're talking about what Miles Morales is doing in Enter the Spider-Verse, I think it's useful. to This feels like an old-timey kind of superhero story, a superhero story very grounded in comic books as a medium of storytelling. And as such, it shares, I think, some of the goals, among them which are, yes, we want you as a child to feel like you belong somewhere and can grow into something. But in doing that, we want you to do that. You want, we want you to do something. We want you to participate. Like the way that you grow up is by taking part. Uh, and maybe this has something to do with comics growing up around the sort of World War II era where it was expected that kids would, you know, gather spare tin cans for, for making tomahawk missiles and such. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's like every, everyone should do that. Pot. God, I, uh, I, I remember that. What a what a what a great and dignified man George <laughs> Herbert Walker Bush was, you know, but just apropos of nothing. But, I remember but, but, I remember <laughs> taking up the collection for tomahawk, yeah, exactly. spare tomahawk missiles. Exactly. But you know what I mean? That like that something about the historical moments of superheroes coming at a time of trying to reconcile individualism and nationalism and immigration and belonging and these various trends that were going on in America at the time still speaks to some experience of Miles Morales wanting to belong, but not wanting to belong in a passive way, wanting to belong in an active way, wanting to not necessarily dismiss his strangeness, but to find a way in which his strangeness relates to and is a benefit to the world around him so he can feel good about that. And uh, and that's, of course, a challenge for most people, uh, but in, in the particular way it's articulated around Miles Morales for black teenagers and, and mixed race teenagers. Miles Morales isn't just black, of course. It's also Latino. Uh, yeah, he's a, and, he's a mixed, yeah. Uh, yeah, mixed ethnicity, uh, sort of teenage, yeah, adolescent boy, which is a in New York is sort of a uh, troubling category now, and like a, you know a lot with especially his father being named Jefferson Davis. Yeah, <laughs> like, what about that? Huh? I, I I don't know the history of that. Is that like are they are they serious right now? <laughs> like, <laughs> 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 I mean, do I, that, if I, I have. I have never really considered Miles Morales's father to be like something I really wanted to look up in the Marvel database. Uh, but yeah, his name is Jefferson Davis. Yeah. And it, right. he's yeah, he's he's from uh, I'm trying to think when he was first written. When was he created? 
Um, I guess it probably was 2011 when Miles Morales was created. But yeah, isn't that wild? And they've that- done, I mean, they've done a lot with the character. I sort of I, I learned uh, a lot when I did. I didn't do the Marvel Wikia, but I did the, the Wikipedia ones. And like he has a substantial backstory in that he was recruited by S.H.I.E.L.D. He elected not to uh, do S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, he or like he deferred his shield admission for a year or something like that. He <laughs> goes to shield for America. Is yeah, that what it was? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but ended up being a, uh, a police officer and a PDNY officer in uh, you know in Brooklyn, and that's like um, that. And it's it's interesting, like a, a little bit because Miles Morales is a. Uh, a right mixed ethnicity young uh black and latino man um i and the the first i i didn't totally realize that his dad was a cop i uh at first when the he trips on his way to school that first time and the police car the the police cruiser pulls up and i thought like oh wow this is going to be dark, you know, because of the history in New York of like stop and frisk and of uh, various kinds of conflict between um, citizens and, and the police. It was like and then it, it turns out it's dad. So like the idea, the idea of like the police as like a metaphor for your parents and, and of like legal authority as a metaphor for parental authority is is what it was. And actually, you know, they made it kind of sweet with him calling out on the uh, calling out on the loudspeaker when he's dropping him off at school. You got to say, I love you, too, Dad. You know, that that was kind yeah. of a, a sweet, embarrassing sort of teenage moment. But I like a little bit. This goes to like, is there and I, I think the moment of uncertainty is is intended because it does seem to be capitalized on or it does seem to be underscored, I guess, is what I mean, in 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 a couple of ways with music and with uh, uh, camera angles, with with angles of the, the drawing and stuff like of the animation that like, oh, gosh, this this really there, there's a lot of dark material here that we could go yeah. into. The, the, the movie, again, is, is having it both ways in terms of his politics, right? Because we get to see Miles Morales as a as a lawbreaker, frankly. You know, he's breaking into places with his uncle. We should talk about the uncle in a second. But anyway, he's breaking into places. He's spraying graffiti. He's tagging things. Um, and so, you know, he's got that, uh, that, for lack of a better word, criminal element to him. But his dad's a cop. Again, so it makes them, you know, respectable, part of respectable society and therefore less of a threat. Um, well, that's- yeah, it's just it's challenging the whole I wouldn't necessarily say it's having it both ways as much as it's challenging the dichotomy or challenging, I guess, the dialectic, the law, yeah, yeah. the the law and, and criminal dialectic is challenged by this movie, as it often is in stories that involve the kingpin. Because ironically enough, even though the kingpin is the kingpin of crime, the kingpin is also generally a philanthropist and a real estate developer and somebody who is very in with the inner society of of New York. So it's interesting to think that like when the kingpin is the antagonist, the criminals are, are the law. And in that case, it gets very blurry. But I see what you mean. I mean, I know what you mean. It's having it both ways because it it most stories that have characters like Morris Miles Morales in them really damn the police. Because the police would shoot him. But by making the policeman his dad, it's saying this isn't that kind of story. And the question then is, well, is there a different kind of story that this could be? 
Uh, and again, it feels so old fashioned because I feel like this kind of story is really common for old kind of superheroes. Like the kid was getting into trouble and getting in fights. I mean, that's the story of Shazam, right? The kid was getting in fights on the subway and you know, he wandered in and found an old homeless man. And the kid shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but, you know, then he got the magical powers, right? Um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles break all sorts of laws. Um, but I guess the police are their enemies. Um, yeah, it's just it's interesting to think about uh, how the sort of the narrative of the do-gooder criminal and not just the sort of revolutionary the one who wants to destroy the law but the do-gooder criminal that the the cops kind of respect and but don't uh but don't, can't really cooperate with on the surface is is a sort of old idea that feels a little bit out of place in contemporary society though it felt in place in this movie and this movie feels contemporary so maybe there's still life in that old dog yet Sure. I, well, I think it, I think it has to do with something, and this is this is. Forgive me, I'm going to kind of take a I'm going to take a flying leap into kind of a, a you know dark dark inky spider verse of of ideas that that I have, and and uh, help me sort these help me sort these out a little bit, if you will. But I think I think it has something to do with our questions about the audience of this movie, the sort of the style of this, of the film. And, uh, also even like the corporate, um, situation that now allows these sort of allows Marvel IP and Spider-Man and Spider-Verse and stuff like that. And the collaboration between, uh, Sony and Disney on, on these things. Um, and what Pete said about the kind of the didactic uses of, of comic books or the idea that's present in a lot of American children's literature that we're kind of like that the literature is trying to form you up into something. Whereas like Grimm's, uh, the Grimm's fairy tales are not trying to like form you into a particular kind of citizen. They're trying to terrify you or sort of give voice to the to the innate terror of uh, of childhood. Um, but the the, you know, the something that's required in in the problem of making a movie like an assumption that we have when there's a problem of making a movie that needs to appeal to teenagers is that the movie is not being made by teenagers right and the idea of like speaking to children about the kind of the lessons for encouraging them in various sorts of things in terms of good citizenship and participation and and service and and you know community and an idea actually even in in the jefferson davis character the idea that you would you know that you, that you actually would not to be corny, but that you would protect and serve, which he very sincerely intends to do and, and has no truck with this, this vigilante Spider-Man who doesn't, who shows up once a day and doesn't do the kind of the hard work of, of, um, serving and protecting the community, like, like a good parent, right? <laughs> um, yeah, Spider-Man is a Disneyland dad, you know, is the, is the accusation he makes, I guess, right? Is, is that the children aren't making these, um, entertainments themselves flash forward to 2018 right and children are making by children i mean the adolescents like the people of minor age right are making entertainment for themselves now it's all mediated through platforms that are controlled by adults not only adults by like large multinational businesses but you know th there are things i don't know if you've ever uh, taken a dive into youtube creator type of 
videos, the videos that are done for adolescents by adolescents, but it's strange and alienating. I used to be, uh, what, what did Grandpa Simpson say? I used to be with it, but now they changed what it is, and, and I, what, uh, what I'm with isn't it anymore, and what's it seems weird and strange to me. I sometimes feel this way looking at, at YouTube, though. I mean, I guess the fundamentals of entertainment have not changed for uh, many millennia, and so there is something recognizable about it, but it is like just the slang and the the stuff like it's sort of getting get i'm a i'm a weird old man that sitting sitting with pete in the back row of the movie theater with our our trench coats and our our you know nipping at our our flasks of uh I don't know what's an old manny type thing to drink, you know. I don't know the the, the uh, uh, Jim Beam whiskey or something like that. <laughs> the, the, um, the, uh, the, the this exists though, right? And as a as an entertainment, as a like a commercial proposition, you have to not only compete against the other uh, the other comic books, the other Spiders Men, the other you know very various kinds of of um uh same same type entertainments you have to compete against all this other entertainment including entertainment on instagram on uh you know and and, and i swear like what my 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 little uh uh baby nieces like um i say baby they're they're teenagers but like they they i'm on their instagrams and like i don't even understand the acronyms they use you know uh i'm i'm confused afrn you know uh as, as i think that's a thing um and that, but that's like that is a use of time. It's it's monetized. You know, there's there's a business model to it. It's a um, uh, it's a legitimate competitor for the kind of the eyeballs for the time for the entertainment of uh of the big movie going the big movie going audience which is traditionally teenagers and that's like I that that's a a thing and so like I think the the I don't know. I th- I think it becomes necessary to do something like it becomes necessary to do something like into the Spider-Verse where it I won't say I mean I mean where it tries to thread the needle, you know, in in a lot of ways that that we've been describing and that like it, to me sort of the the visual style is part of it, not just the uh not just the use of kind of hip hop art and like uh graffiti art and like you know as uh, Miles's um kind of artistic talent, but also the way the the frame will break into frames, you know, the way that words will appear on the uh, on the screen, the way that thoughts will sometimes be spoken, sometimes be uh, written, and sometimes both. Right? This is like this is alienating film technique. If if we're talking about, uh, uh, I don't know the the if we're talking about like Man Ray or something like that, right? Like um, this is or like Unchen Andalou, right? Like this is this is stuff that was 
a part of a, an artistic avant-garde that now is is sort of completely normal. I mean, partly because partly as an homage to comic books, which is an older art form. Um, partly because everyone's doing Snapchat story or not Snap. No one uses Snapchat. Sorry, that company will be sold. Uh, you know, here on the Overthinking a Business podcast, we like to make a lot of uh, business predictions, and mine is that uh, Snapchat Snapchat is uh, bought in a fire sale within the next three years. Um, that, <laughs> out of nowhere, the RKO out of nowhere, the IPO out of nowhere. Um, that like uh, everyone's making uh, Instagram stories. That's that's the right one, right? Um, everyone's making Instagram stories and writing text on the you know on the frame of the picture now, you know, and that that's like that is a visual style. There, that is a a image grammar, you know, that everybody that everybody knows about. And I think it's like, I don't know. It's, it is, um, it is quite an accomplishment, I think, to make a movie that reads and kind of reads authentically to, to actual, according to Hoyle kids. Right. And also is legible is not illegible to, uh, uh, you know, tired old, weird old dude like me. Um, I wonder yeah. if there is any phrase that has ever been less comprehensible to the people it was intended for as the phrase, according to Hoyle kids. <laughs> <laughs> Hoyle, yeah. of course, being the standard purveyor of playing card rules <laughs> from the 1940s, <laughs> as mentioned in the musical Guys and Dolls. <laughs> so I, I see what you're saying. Just for waiting around for that little band of gold. We don't wait around for a little band of gold. We lean in. But the uh If Simon Masterson liked it, he should have put a ring on it, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Even that song is old at this point. I really liked the division of the frames up, the way that the the sort of the animation skipped frames. Yeah. I liked that a lot. I thought it was really cool. I thought it jived with several of the other artistic points in the story. I felt like it made me it, first of all, it, it did a wonderful thing with the uncanny valley effect by introducing the element of closure. I don't have to be creeped out by how the characters move because my brain is making the characters move more than the actual animation is, which I thought was delightful. And I really enjoyed that. Yep. Uh, but but also the idea that at any given point, you're looking at a still image of the character. You still are able to register that these are still images and that it's an effigy. It felt like the alienating quality of that was related to the notion of what the superhero is and the blank outline on the wall of the no expectations. What is it that Miles Morales is crying out and needing when Spider-Man is dying in the world in that for himself? And it's to have it mirror back to him to see that icon that he can then, you know, relate to and making that image into an icon, which is what the alienation does to an extent well, I'm even chaotic to an extent. I felt like I thought that the animation style made the characters more iconic and more rep- more of a presentational representation rather than a representational representation of people who were being those situations. Sorry, Mark, you you go ahead. No, no it's, I 100% agree. That's where I wanted to take the conversation, right? I mean, like you know, <laughs> by way of by way of contrast, right? In the modern superhero movie that strives so hard for realism. Um, and basically gets like 99.999% of the way there, um, still leaves something a little bit to be desired. At like a basic kind of artistic and visual level, um, I'm thinking of like the heavy CGI, the explosions, all the lighting that seems a little bit off 
which uh, tweaks your brain into noticing the thing that's a little bit off. Whereas in this animated, heavily stylistic world, um, it allows us just to kind of like soak in all the weirdness and get a little bit more in touch with the characters. I really, really appreciated this. I thought this was like the most interesting movie to look at that I've seen in a very, very long time. So I, I was totally into it. Yeah, yeah, for the, sure. uh, yeah. The visual guy is probably, I feel like Peter Ramsey deserves something of a shout out for this movie. Uh, Peter Ramsey, because I've been looking up people associated with this movie to figure out how it got to be so good. And you ever do that? And you look through the directors and the second unit directors and the screenwriters, and you're like, wow, that person worked on a bazillion awesome movies. This There's probably something going on with this guy. So so Peter Ramsey is the first uh, African-American director of a big-budget animated feature. He was the director of Rise of the Guardians in 2012. But he was a storyboard artist. That's how he got into, into movies for such films as Independence Day, Fight Club, uh, Predator 2, all of which have really compelling and interesting uh, action sequences that take place in strange situations, right, and, and kind of uh, highlight really cool, iconic sorts of scenarios. He was a second unit director for one of my favorite movies, Higher Learning, in 1995, which shows he has the cred to deal with the challenges that teenagers are dealing with, you know, in race in America. Wait, wait, is Higher Learning Danny DeVito or is that Michelle Pfeiffer or is that a different one? No, I I can't tell. I can't tell things apart. I'm old and sad. You used to be with it, Matt. You're you're thinking of the John Mulaney pot comedy. No, I don't know. There's no John Mulaney pot comedy called Higher Learning. Higher Learning is a delightful movie and everybody should watch it. It is an Ice Cube and Omar Epps and Lawrence Fishburne and Matthew Rappaport. It is a John Singleton movie. Oh, Uh, it is. It is a John Singleton movie about uh, a uh, uh, university. Actually, it's about it was shot at your alma mater in UCLA, and it's oh, about yeah. uh, racial racial tensions. Jennifer Connelly is in it. Uh, it is a Carrie Wurr who's in it. If you've played Red Alert 2, then you know who Carrie Wurr is, or if you watch the latter seasons of Sliders. Uh, anyway, Buster Rhymes is in it. Don't, don't forget Buster Rhymes. But basically, it's a very smart and kinetic and compelling story about racial tension, hatred, and attempts at reconciliation across gender identity, sexual identity, specifically race. Uh, you know, the alt-right and the neo-Nazis are involved. The professors are involved. has lots of great speeches. Uh, it is a super great movie. And if you haven't seen Higher Learning, you should totally see it. It's awesome. And uh, the guy who directed Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was the second unit director on Higher Learning, which might indicate that he is not just at the age of 56 being asked, what do black teenagers think about America? (laughs) It has, in fact, been a major part of his work for his entire life. Uh, And it helps that he is black. Perhaps I'm going to put that out there as a hypothesis and feel free to test it with your own data. Also, second unit director on the Tupac Shakur, Janet Jackson movie, Poetic Justice, uh, which locates which is funny because to think that. Poetic Justice is very had a famous uh, iconic promotional image where because they drove around in a in a mail truck. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And and like there was graffiti on the mail truck that said Poetic Justice or something like that. Or there's some sort of promotion that I vaguely remember through the ancient mists of time and Tupac movies of like graffiti on the mail truck as being uh, kind of representative of their love in some way. And if you think about images like that, all these images having this through line through this visual artist, the mail truck in 
uh, poetic justice, right? Like maybe the scene on the quad and Buster Rhymes screaming in Higher Learning, uh, you know, the White House and Independence Day, you know, that the that these this is maybe he's something of a vorticist, I suspect, I suspect, right? These like iconic images that all get jammed together in all these different kinds of works manifesting in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse might be a product somewhat of this guy's oeuvre and what he's been working on uh, through all these years. First, you know, with these more kind of uh, black oriented films and then eventually with DreamWorks. He worked on multiple Shrek movies, by the way, which vindicates vindicates uh, my, Shrek, my your, Shrek determination. Yeah, your Shrek hypothesis. My Shrek hypothesis has 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 several uh, several conical, exteriorly protruding data points at this point. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's other people who worked on this movie, obviously. But I just wanted to point to Peter Ramsey as somebody associated probably with the visual style, because you always have to guess to an extent as to who's really responsible for a part of a movie that you like. Uh, but, you know, if it's also somebody who did the 90. 90- he also, unfortunately, did the Matthew Broderick Godzilla movie. Uh, so Underrated. 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 Okay. Yes. Okay. 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 That's. I, I'm not going to make that my internet hill to die on, but I mean, it's a really <laughs> low bar to, to, to clear there because everybody hates that movie, and I say that there are some redeemable parts of it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this movie, which yeah. is uh, wonderful, enjoyable, and you should go see it if you haven't seen it. Yes. Um. So. So. Uh, well, well, that's not. That's not a terrible place to to end. Hey guys, uh, I I saw a great teaser trailer this this week. Ooh, yes. A te- what what did teased? it tease? I was teased. I was teased by a trailer on the playground. These are my adolescent problems. I was teased by a trailer <laughs> on the playground this week. Make it stop teasing me and show me a movie. Uh, there, there was a teaser trailer for uh, the the film version of Downton Abbey uh, th- this week. Hey, wait, how many se- did did Downton Abbey do six seasons in a movie? Did they actually get to six seasons, or did they end at five? Uh, well, Downton Abbey had that controversy, right, where I got I got some of my price of buying that show on iTunes refunded because they were one of the first movies to split up a season into two seasons and and uh, and say that it was one season when it was two. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, like, they made you pay for it. Tw- so if you bought season five of Downton Abbey, you thought you were buying the last season of Downton Abbey. And then they came out with season six. And if you had bought season five, you ended up getting season six for free. Uh-huh. So there are six seasons. But the last season is only nine episodes. And the and the uh, the fifth season is also only nine episodes well actually they're all only nine episodes uh which is very short but uh i guess it's british so by, yeah sense. by contemporary by contemporary yeah. standards um the the or by the contemporary uh prestige tv standards bodyguard i think which is the british show that i've seen most recently is like only eight episodes or something like that which stars uh, rob yeah. stark as a uh as a, a military veteran with ptsd um the uh the yeah apparently they're making a, a movie of of Downton Abbey and the teaser trailer was there and and it it contained images of things like uh you know um the 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 cloths being pulled off of the furniture and the drapes being opened and light streaming in through the window and like uh, beauty shots of the exterior of the castle that they that they use to uh, represent the house in Yorkshire that the the um, Crawley family are supposed to live in and the uh, all all of this stuff is um, quite uh, quite exciting if if you were. Uh, uh, if you were, you know, a Downton Abbey fan, as as I know we were, uh, Pete, what would you say was the Downton Abbey moment of the Downton Abbey trailer? 
So the Downton Abbey moment of the Downton Abbey trailer. You, you, you knew that was coming, right? <laughs> yes. So if you watch the Downton Abbey trailer, there is a moment where a mysterious figure whose face is not seen, but I'm hoping is uh, is presumed to be either what Lady Mary, Lady Edith, something like that. It's a it's a modern woman uh, seen from behind riding a motorcycle towards Downton Abbey, like a scooter, a sort of small motorcycle. And I felt like there was a really interesting and compelling irony in the shot of the sort of the idea that Downton Abbey is kind of emerging from sleep, that it's being woken up, that it's being sort of called back into duty. And you have this image. Imagine the image without Downton Abbey there. There's a horizon. There's a green. There's a road going into the distance. There's a woman dressed up for the 20s or 30s on a motorcycle kind of racing off into the distance. This is really distinctively an image about the future, that this is somebody who is leaving the past and going to the future. But the fact that the future that is in front of them is the edifice of the building of Downton Abbey, which this movie, this 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 trailer makes look huge. Right. Like like it makes it just it really focuses on the physical imposition that the actual building presents, which is not really something that was a big part of the move of the show. No, they didn't do a lot of like. Yeah. Um, So I guess what's going to happen is we're going to have one hundred million dollars of CGI of the exterior walls of Downton Abbey, just like how large and gargoyled they are or whatever. But but the idea that she is racing towards the future and the future is Downton Abbey is a compelling paradox. And I'm curious to see what they're going to do with that. Because the uh, if you're like me, when you watch TV or you see a promotion for a movie, your first assumption is that it's going to end in some sort of horrible catastrophe. <laughs> like Thus why I didn't watch Life of Pi, because I was, I was certain the kid was going to get eaten by the tiger, and I did not want to watch it. Um, but this idea, when you're watching Downton Abbey, there's this creeping sense of dread that at the end of the story, something terrible is going to happen to Downton Abbey. It's going to go bankrupt, you know, and not, not like, not like, oh, it's going to explode in a, in a blast of Nazi V1 rocket fire, right? Like, that's not exactly... Exactly. The, the rockets don't shoot that far. No, but it's, uh, that, it's that this can't possibly last, right? Yes, like that yes, this, yes. and we sort of we sort of wanted to, you know. And it's like the the hunger for it surprises even me. The like the focus on the second royal wedding or second and third, I guess, royal wedding of this generation of royals, right? The the who who got married, Prince Harry got married, and then the princess Eugenie uh, got married, right? Like. Uh, did, didn't she? P2 not follow this stuff? Was, yeah, was, yeah, you're right. You're correct. Yeah. Yeah. Was, is that another word for Meghan Markle? Is it Merkel? Um, no, yeah. Was, no, 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 no. Harry got, Harry got married to Meghan Markle. Uh, yes. Formerly an actress, and then um, uh, Princess Eugenie, who is a different person. <laughs> Is she from the English royal family? Uh, yeah, she okay. uh, she is the daughter of I think the Duke of York, maybe. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, there was this huge, uh, people be, people being into it, the, the world over, like, uh, huge American, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the Royals are sort of popular. They're great. They're great brand ambassadors, uh, if nothing else, but like the, the sort of the hunger for this aristocratic sort of claptrap, which I love also. So I, I, you know, I, I, I call it. Uh, claptrap, not to diminish it, but because I feel like that poppy, the claptrap or poppycock is probably the the correct aristocratic word for it. Um, 
it, the hunger for this stuff surprises uh, me sometimes, but it is it is sort of neat to see and like like making Downton Abbey new, right? Like, t- what what are the dials you can turn on the Downton Abbey trailer? Is an is an interesting thing. Now, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The trailer ends with a, a list of people in the movie, not actors character names and so like it's de- it's clear that the the pitch that's being made for this movie is that like it's different but it's really the same you know because yeah. uh, uh mr bates is gonna be there you know and the 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 sisters are called by their um the sisters are called by their uh titles so one is a is a what do you call the wife of a marquis um the the copper bottomed Marquis that Edith marries at the end of of Downton Abbey, and uh, and Lady Marquess, yeah, Marquess, Mar- okay, something like that. Um, yeah. The uh, they're all identified by these uh, uh, by these correct by these correct titles, and then you know Mister Molesley is going to be there, you know, <laughs> and that, that like that just brought it brought a smile to my face to see this because the the promise is that you're sort of you're going to be reunited with your. Uh, you're going to be reunited with your old friends. And that, you know, I don't know. Also, by the way, like this trailer could have been constructed before frame one of the film had been shot. Like aside from the, aside from the woman on the scooter, um, it, it seems like it could just be outtakes and, and establishing shots from, yeah. uh, from the series itself. So like my, my hot take was, wow, they piece this together from like, uh, ends and pieces of, uh, of just their kind of off cuts of, of shooting the series down to Abbey. How cynical. Uh, but then I saw the list of people and I was like, Oh, my friends, it is so good to see you again. Yeah. True British cuisine makes good use of scraps uh, (laughs) and elevates the dish as such, right? It's a mince pie is what it is, Uh, the trailer at least. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, do you think that it means that all the characters are going to be recast as different actors? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're getting, (laughs) you know... Do you right. think they're going to reboot it? Is that what's going to happen? That it's going to be totally new people? It's going to be like Lord Grantham, as you'd be like, I'll be shopping with the lady Sinbad, isn't it? As Lord Grantham. Like, uh, <laughs> wow, that was good. I was actually trying to recast Lord Grantham in my head really quickly. And, uh, and Sinbad, Sinbad wasn't like the first person you thought of, like it was for me. <laughs> no, but Sinbad is an excellent choice. Uh, I feel he like he shares Lord Grantham's enthusiasm for entertaining soldiers. If you've ever watched his in front of the air force in iraq and on youtube but at any rate sorry go ahead he was uh he was in the military wasn't sinbad actually in the military yeah uh, he was a sailor i believe oh was he i didn't know <laughs> that's sorry <laughs> i deserve that i walked I, I sailed i right into that one full steam yeah. full steam ahead uh no, he was I, in the air force i, he I was in the air yeah. Um yeah, I thought the deal with Sinbad was like he got his his start, he got bitten by the performing bug at like an Air Force talent show or something like that. Wow. But Sinbad is an is an excellent thing. It's actually into the Downton verse, right? And it's mm-hmm. this is Downton from like Earth, you know, five nine seven four. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, Lord Downton is, or, or Lord Grantham is, uh, Sinbad and, um, Lady Mary is, 
uh, uh, John Krasinski and Lady Edith is John Mulaney. You know, why are you making them oh, all dudes? The, <laughs> the, the, the Dowager, the Dowager Countess, instead of uh, giving you a, a withering Von Mo, will just like aggressively point at you. Yeah, the, da- the, the, the Dowager Countess is a young Japanese girl from the future with a robot. I thought it was going to be a delightful puppy. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing that could have the real gravitas and the adorability to really step into Dame Maggie Smith's shoes would be the most beautiful puppy dog you've ever seen in your life. I hope that Dame Maggie Smith is still in it. She's got to be, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the Dowager Countess of of Grantham is is one of the the characters that's listed in in the promissory note. You know, Um, (laughs) very few movies have a promissory note rather than a trailer. But this one appears to (laughs) the entail must be smashed. Yes, Uh, that's a that's a deep Downton cut for you. All right. We have some uh, we have some listener feedback, but we are sort of out of time uh, for tonight. So uh, that that remains as an enticing prospect for the future. Before we go, I just want to make one last plug really before the the uh, while you still have time to shop for the holidays. I want to make one last plug for getting things through the overthinking at gift guide where we have recommended uh, as we do every year presents that are good for you or for the overthinkers in your life. Your smart, funny friends might like the things in our gift guide uh foremost among them a membership in overthinking it the new simplified streamlined membership in overthinking it for five bucks a month for which you get some extra podcasts i've been very gratified to see people uh write um write in and buy new memberships and say uh how much the show means to them we're very glad to do it for you and we're very glad that you can support us help us out with a very small contribution of about a buck a buck and a quarter per episode and uh, that, you know, that helps us keep the lights on, keep, keep the thing going. That, that helps us go towards the future, uh, but a future that is exactly like the past in all crucial respects. We promise not to turn any of the dials that would, uh, that would upset you, <laughs> but only if you become a member of Overthinking It. So uh, thanks for that. Thanks, Mark, and to Pete for uh, being alternate reality overthinkers with me on the Spideyverse podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, probably it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Guys, we made a huge mistake. We went this entire podcast without talking about Nick Cage and his amazing performance in this movie. <laughs> Whoa, Nick Cage. Nick Cage. The bees, Nick Cage. I, I, I was definitely like, whose voice is that? <laughs> whose voice is that? And then when it showed up in the credits, I was like, wow. There's a lot. Marshall Ali oh. is in this movie, too, as the uncle. And we said we were going to talk about the uncle, oh, and we never we did. Uncle. Wow. But he's played by Oscar winner Marshall Ali. And Spider-Man Noir is played by Os- Academy Award winner. Sorry. Academy Award winner Marshall Ali. Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. Comedy legend Lily Tomlin. All-star cast, people. All-star cast. Lily Tomlin's voice was a delightful surprise in this. It always is, definitely. And that's the truth. But guess who they didn't cast? (laughs) 